Hey everybody, this is uh, Nevin Gusnak, uh, your host for the Patriotic Populist. And with me, we have our co-host, Herschel Miller. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good, Nevin. It's been a hell of a week. Got a goat pen built at my house yesterday. Got some internet run and new internet installed. So all things considered, pretty good week. How's yours yeah, been? Yeah, everything's been great. Um, it, if you can believe it, it's nearing a month uh, of a re new relationship that I'm in right now with a, an amazing woman uh, who really I'm so compatible with. And she's just the most amazing person uh, that, I'm, that I've been with ever in my entire life. The relationship's effortless, where both of us are into each other. We have certain common political views and political priorities. You know, we like the same music, we enjoy some of the same pastimes, and she's just so kind and so sweet, and just everything is just wonderful on that front. Otherwise, family's doing well, reconnecting with them, reconnecting with friends, now that more and more people are getting vaccinated, and we can kind of see each other and make plans, and job is going well, and my daughter's studying up a storm since it's the end of her sophomore year. Uh, just doing my exercise, just got done with that, just got done eating an early dinner. And at the Peace Day Resistance, I got for tonight's show a small bottle of vodka. You got the cigar, I got the small bottle of vodka. And this is my token of solidarity with the people in Russia who are struggling for freedom against the crypto KGB dictatorship led by Vladimir Putin and the United Russia Party, which is kind of a crypto-communist organization. So I am going to toast, propose a toast to the United States, to a safe, prosperous, and truly free United States. Neither right nor left, but America first. Here, here. Yeah, I got a funny story to tell you about these cigars. So I've been smoking uh, these since I was like 14 or 15 years old. And I, I liked the old Swisher blunts that they had forever. The Swisher for king size. There was a couple of different ones, but they're basically the same. Unflavored, just straight red Swishers. When I turned 18, now for you children that are too young to remember this, when I graduated high school in 2016, you could go buy a pack of smokes at 18 year old until Trump come in and screwed that up. So I turned 18, went down to the, the local tobacco shop and bought a $22 uh, Cuban seeded, it wasn't Cuban from the island, but Cuban descended cigar. Mm -hmm. Now, I know now that that's a cheap cigar, even by cigar standards for most people, but I got it. I took the day off of school, went home, lit that thing up. I got about halfway through that cat piss tasting stinking ass cigar, knocked <laughs> out against the tree, and went back to smoking these five for or two for five cigars. I just to me, I understand the appeal of cigars, like really expensive ones. I get that. And I've had a couple that were really good, but I'm not going to pay $30 for that. I'm no, I do not have enough money to acquire that taste. No, no, no. I need, look, you got to do what you got to do. Now, uh, I never was really a smoker. I mean, I've tried cigarettes, including clove cigarettes. I puffed them a few times in college. I will say the clove cigarettes taste much better than the regular cigarettes, hands down. And on top of that, the cigars, there's nothing like a good cigar. I mean, I really haven't smoked it, but I've tried it. And I will say this cigars outranks all of the smokes that I've tried, hands down. Not that we're encouraging it. I'm just giving you my opinion. Yeah, no, I'm going to go ahead and my vodka. Yeah. Tito's, a good brand of vodka, by the way. Everybody who likes this show gets one free carton of Marlboros. <laughs> or they get a small bottle, COD, <laughs> made payable to the Patriotic Populist Fund 
uh, you get a couple of bottles of free Tito's bottle of vodka. It's a very good bottle of vodka. I mean, you get... Is that an American-made bottle of vodka there, Nevin? Don't tell me you're not drinking American-made vodka. All right, let's see. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's see. <laughs> it says Austin, Texas. Distilled and bottled by Fifth Generation Incorporated, Austin, Texas. So it is Americanish, not Ruski. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's what's funny. And you I'm going to drink to that shit here. Yeah. Woo Here's to America. Yeah. A lot of guys down there that I went to class with this year for my apprenticeship, we, they, they kind of started to run a joke because, like, I really, I, I really believe in the union as a person. That's, that's one of the things. I've, I've really embraced that way of thinking. And a lot of times they'll be messing with me before I go out and eat. They're like, you know, they're not union, right? You got union tools. You are in union boots. You know, it's just one of them things that like uh, these boots I've got, these third goods, I got a discount for them because they're a union made pair of boots. So it's one of them things that this is my belief. I genuinely try to buy union made American made goods when I can. But I understand that sometimes, practically speaking, you just either can't find them available or they're just too much money for what I have. Right. But it's one of them things. One of my favorite Facebook pages that I follow is a guy that opened up a store called the Made in America store. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give this man a shout out. Please, if you listen video, go give this man a like and you know follow his Facebook page because what he did was open up a brick and mortar store that only sells American made goods of all kinds, American made pop, candy, clothes, cookware, all of this. I mean, this man is out there really making an effort to do what a lot of people say they're going to do when they talk about buying American. It is. This is the thing. We can sit around forever waiting for our government to change, or we can start doing stuff like that right now to help support American industry. And it's going to cost you a little bit more. But in the long term, when you look at this in the bigger picture, that is going to help local communities. That's going to help that guy, for instance, you know, in his local community. That's going to give your neighbors better jobs. This is why you have to, even though it's hard, really make that effort to buy American-made goods. And also support your local businesses, too, including the non-chain stores like the non-chain restaurants, the non-chain uh, you know, retail outlets and things of that nature, because they're often pillars of the community. And you get to know the owners and the workers on a first name basis. Like I was going to a dry cleaners, for example, and it's a mom and pop operation. And, you know, just walking in there, they're just so warm. They're so nice. These are pillars of the community. They remember you. Uh, it's really a good experience. And I think that's an extension of excuse me, of the uh, whole buy local, buy American. I think it works hand in hand. I mean, and I have to reiterate, just like you mentioned, I think it was the last show or the show before that. Again, we're very pro-business, but we're very pro-American business in the sense that it's rooted in the communities, whether it's a local or regional bank, whether it's you know, a local retail chain or a regional retail chain or a local manufacturer. Yes, we can do what we can to help, whether buying maybe American furniture, which is very high quality. I have some in my apartment. As a matter of fact, I have American made furniture. Uh, you know, there are other products that are going to be hard to come by that being made in the United States. Sadly, a lot of our electronics for at least three to four decades have been slowly being made in Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, for example, and that's and now unfortunately China, communist China. So, but yeah, as, as much as you can, I encourage you to buy local and if all possible buy American and even better buy union made too as well. I'm a member of my union in my profession. I'm a library manager for one of the small branches in Broward County down here in South Florida. And I'm a member of the Government Supervisors Association, which is a, ultimately a subdivision of the American Federation of Labor 
Congress of Industrial Organizations, or known popularly as the AFL-CIO. And I proudly pay, uh, you know, a, a per paycheck uh, money uh, to belong to the union because I believe that we all, the more people participate in the union and give them financial sustenance, the more power they'll have at the bargaining table. So uh, unions, you know, unions built this country in many, many respects and built the middle class. I know that's a cliche, but we wouldn't have had the 40-hour week. We wouldn't have had the bans on child labor, uh, you know, certain safety rule, legitimate safety regulations and workplace health rules and, you know, better wages and weekends and minimum wages. We wouldn't have all that unless there was tremendous decades of decades of union pressure leading up to the FDR administration. Well, on that point, I'd like to say something here that I've heard as a contentious talking point here lately, especially. A lot of times people like to point to the fact that Henry Ford had a non-union factory when he instilled a lot of very good labor policies, when he implemented a weekend, he implemented good working hours, he implemented... Their wages were among some of the best wages in the entire working class at the time. Henry Ford, not a saint, not a man that I look up to, but not Mm -hmm. a, you know, wasn't terrible on that front. But one of the things that is often left out in that conversation is, is that he done a lot of them or implemented a lot of them policies because of outside union pressure. Mm -hmm. He worried about the company unionizing. And create, you know, raised benefits, raised wages, all the other things to stave off a union. And look, yeah, maybe, and this is my general policy, is that if if the question is union or no union, I tend to side with, you know, shop unionizing. Mm-hmm. But look, I'll take a victory like that where I can get one. And the fact is, is that wages were raised because of the union presence in the area, which to me is not maybe not just as good but a victory nonetheless that is the power of organized labor because if you can scare the shit out of your boss into raising your wages has the union accomplished its goal absolutely and the other part the other part of the equation here and you brought it up on the Herschel Muller show one of the more recent episodes is also Henry Ford realized that people with enough cash in their pockets and bank accounts could buy the product that they were producing it's like what you talked about and what Nick Hanauer who himself is a mo- almost a billionaire in uh, uh, financial investment banker type uh, he's an investor by his profession and a very wealthy man, Nick Hanar, and you and him talk about the notion of bottom-up economics. There are more of us than there are of the so-called 1% or the super wealthy. And if more of us, the majority, has access to disposable income, we have a numerical majority. We're going to buy more crap. We're going to buy more stuff. We're going to consume more services. And that's going to provide a bigger lift to the economy if, as opposed to just giving so-called tax cuts to wealthy corporations and Wall Street investors and then theoretically praying to the highest heavens that they're going to create more jobs, which has never happened. It's all stock buybacks, whether it's the Trump tax cuts, the George W. Bush tax cuts. I talk about it in volume two of my book, Turning the Page, available on Amazon. Gosh, if you want it for free, I'll even email it to you. Write me at ng 874 at bellsouth.net. I'll send you electronic copies of the book. I put my money where my mouth is when it comes to the information in my book on that. I'm not trying to brag. I'm trying to give information. And I talk all about how bottom-up economics work. So Henry Ford realized that in order to stave off the forces of the unions, as well as understanding that the economy works bottom up, and he was an enemy of financial over-financialization of the economy, then, you know, 
that's what happened. So you didn't need a union in a plant because he got it. But Walmart or Amazon, Bezos and the Walton family and their handpicked executives with their shareholders, they don't get it because they generally treat their workers comparatively like cogs in the machine. Well, let me give you a quote here. And this is from one of the greatest American hero or legends and Oklahoma native, Will Rogers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people know Will Rogers for some of his humanitarian efforts across the Midwest. Especially, you know, he'd done a lot of great things. People tend to not look at his more economically left views on things. Mm -hmm. This is a famous quote by him. He said the money was all appropriated for the top in hopes that it would trickle down to the needy. Mr. Hoover didn't know that the money trickled up. Give it to the people at the bottom and the people at the top will have it before night anyhow but will it, it will have at least passed through the poor fellow's hands. That was in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. That That's was, right. you know, when you want to talk about history repeating itself, have we not heard that same argument now that was going on then under Hoover? Because Hoover was a model of the presidents that would proceed from Reagan and onward. A president that believed that a hands-off tax-reducing approach would gener you know, stimulate the U.S. economy when, well, if the depression is anything to say by which I not I don't blame Hoover for the the uh, depression because I think that that was a long time coming anyway. But I'll say this is that his policies to you know to slow down the effects of the Great Depression made it tremendously worse in more instances that it helped anything because the thinking back then was the same as the thinking now that if you give all the money to the richest people, mm -hmm. that they will somehow stimulate the entire economy based off of their awesome skills and, you know, their impressive bootstraps. When the fact is, is that when you look at the COVID-19 pandemic, especially in the economic downturns of 2020, what you'll see is, is that when the consumer force is dropped and when there's no people to supply the labor, mm -hmm. them ultimate bootstraps that these rich people have turn out to be fairly useless. Mm -hmm. You need an economy that is built stable from the bottom to the top. It's like a house. I'll say it again. If your house has no foundation, then the top isn't going to stay up there very long. And if you got a good foundation and you got a good roof, but you don't have any walls, then your house will fall or your roof will collapse in. You need yeah, a house built solid. Well, the economy works. The actual functioning of the economy, contrary to the mark, the hardcore Marxists on the left and the supply siders or trickle downers, if you want to call it on the right, so-called right, is the fact is that the economy operates on an organic basis. And Nick Hanauer talks a lot about this, uh, this whole idea here, you know. The capital, meaning the property and the ideas and the equipment and the office buildings and all the rest of it, of the wealthy capitalists, is, is not going to amount to a hill of beans if they don't have motivated and well-paid workers uh, to utilize the equipment, to sell the services, to staff the company. You know, uh, and then also your company is not going to survive if you don't have enough well-compensated consumers to purchase and consume your services and your products. So again, it all works like a harmonious organism like the human body. And, you know, there are other factors. I mean, the teachers educating the young to enter the workforce in various professions. Uh, you have uh, you know, the construction workers working on the infrastructure to ensure that goods and services and people are transported properly and the internet is running and the telephones are running and everything else. I mean, you kind of get my picture. Everybody has their place in society and we really shouldn't be crapping all over all these legitimate uh, economic actors that make our system hum along you know, smoothly. Problem is, is that you have many average workers that are really being shortchanged in the system. And, you know, of course, you know, economic uh, economists and uh, intellectuals, I forget the gentleman's first name, but Bates, B-A-T-E-S, 
he was one such person who theorized the idea. Uh, you know, it was one of those classical liberal economists, you know, those ideologues that think they know so much, but they know very little. Um, you know, he said, well, you know, the workers are paid what they're worth. Well, just because he says that, and that's accepted as gospel in economics, uh, well, uh, you know, that's not true. Just, you know, just because you claim and it's worshipped by the academy as gospel doesn't mean it's gospel. I mean, after all, you know, the theory of relativity uh, was an update uh, from Sir Einstein's theories of relativity, for example, was uh, an update from Sir Isaac Newton's understanding of the universe. I mean, we're always constantly evolving. And the problem is, is that, you know, there's a vested interest in adhering to half-baked classical liberal economic theories, and that needs to be tossed overboard just as much as the Marxists. I mean, we see how, uh, you know, labor is getting shortchanged, and if people are offered more money, they're going to come working. And ironically, it was Bernie Sanders, the alleged socialist, he's not really a socialist anymore, hasn't been really since 1990s when he somewhat de-radicalized himself. Um, he talks about how, for example, this ice cream parlor, for example, you know, to make up for this labor shortage, they're offering $15 uh, an hour to recruit people. And they had over 1,000 applicants, people rushing over there. Meanwhile, you have dumbass owners saying, posting signs. I'm sure you've seen it on social media saying, well, we're short-staffed. It's because people don't want to work. Well, that's that Tea Party, Reagan, greed is good kind of ideology. I'm sorry. That's garbage. That... That, to me, I, I just look at those signs and I just want to rip them down and burn them in some big bonfire and boycott that restaurant. You know, I'm yeah, I never eat at another one of them restaurants again. Exactly. If I mean, you I, post a sign on your door that says that you can't run your job because you can't find workers, I will never do business with you again. Because what that means is not that there isn't enough people to work. Is that there's not enough people willing to work for the paltry sum that you're willing to pay somebody for their time. Exactly. Now look, let's be reasonable people for a second and understand the fact that businesses don't have an un and I'm talking to the audience. Mm -hmm. Businesses don't have an unlimited amount of cash that they can spend on labor. I understand that fully. But here's a so couple of things that, that you should keep in mind as we go through this conversation. Labor, dollar for hour is as cheap as it's been in a hundred years. The amount of purchasing power versus inflation of the dollar over the last hundred years, this is as cheap as it's been in any of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. As unions have broken down, as trade has opened up globally, as the United States has automated, labor did not keep up. So a lot of people say that the, the in 1932 or 1934, Nevin, correct me here, it's when the original Fair, Fair Labors and Standards Act was passed that set the first minimum wage. Thirty, I think it was 35 or 36. Okay, uh, so I was a little early. So let's just go okay, ahead and say no, 35 no to keep it, keep it yeah, in the middle. No worries. So in 1935, the minimum wage was equivalent of about $4.40 an hour, which people will point to and say, well, see, the minimum wage is actually higher adjusted for inflation now than it was then, but they missed the point of part of that. Inflation is only half of the dollar equation when you're deciding how money adjusts over time. The other part of it is purchasing power. Mm -hmm. What can you buy for an equivalent dollar? And purchasing power has also been lost. Now, I'm not sure of the equivalent statistic on what that would be, but most of the studies that I've read, and this is from libertarian and communist journals alike, have pointed to the fact that the United States dollar is able to buy less than it has been since the gold standard was removed. Now, I'm not an advocate for the gold standard. It's just a point of reference in this conversation. Mm -hmm. The point I'm getting to is, is that when you're asking somebody to work, now only 3% of the U.S. population in the last statistic, I believe, worked at minimum wage, but let's call a spade a spade here. 15 or 52% of U.S. workers are working for less than $31,000 a year. That's a little over $16 an hour. That's half of the U.S. labor force is mm. making $16 an hour less. You have to get into the 70th, 70th percentile to break $50,000 a year. You have to be in the 90th percentile to break 100. 
What I'm saying is, is that the majority of workers in the United States are making well less than what most people assume that they are. Mm -hmm. And it's why home ownership is going down. It's why home building is going down. It's why people aren't raising families. It's why the, the nuclear family that most conservatives tend to latch onto has been destroyed over the last several decades. It's because people simply do not have the money or the time to support and raise a family. Right. Well, everything's the cost of goods and services have gone up since at least the 1980s. I mean, the cost of housing, particularly in the major metropolitan areas, have gone through the roof. I mean, down here in Broward County and more so in Dade County, uh, Miami-Dade County, south of here, I mean, the housing and even the rental costs are like through the roof. I mean, and the salaries and wages have not caught up. The prices on certain food items have gone up, prescriptions, medical services. You look at um, the cost of uh, my medical insurance co-pays. I mean, there was a time where going to a specialist was maybe, what, 20 or $25? Now it's $50. A visit to the emergency room copay was about $100. That went up to $250. I mean, really and truly, I mean, this is where people like Ben, ben Shapiro. I hate Ben Shapiro. I want to beat him up. Sorry. I sh it's a family-friendly show, but I hate No, we'll put that on pay-per-view, Nevin, and make a killing. Yeah, yeah. Ben Shapiro. My name is Ben Shapiro, and I've had every advantage in my life, so I can sit in my ivory tower and declaim and shit on poor people and struggling American workers. My name is Ben Shapiro. <laughs> so my wife's a doctor. Don't forget about that. Do not forget that his wife is a doctor. Dear God, if if humanity, the, the singularity would collapse in on itself, the universe would disappear the next time you forget to mention that Ben Shapiro's wife is a doctor. <laughs> is there a more conceited son of a bitch in all of YouTube? I hate Ben Shapiro. So no, anyway, no. so Ben Shapiro says, you know, you know, we're living great because we can afford new stereo systems and flat screen TVs, but Hello, Ben Shapiro in Reaganland. Get out of your globalist fantasy and greed-addled mind, and let's get down to earth. Just because flat-screen TVs are more supposedly more affordable doesn't mean that the quality of life is increased. You have more and more people working for jobs, less money, food costs going up, health insurance costs going up, uh, you know, utilities, cable, internet, everything going up. Housing, forget about it. Well, and there seems to be a common denominator there, Nevin, and it's that, and I want to make this clear. And it's when not because it's a big government, by the way. Yeah, when I say free market, don't assume that I'm talking about Reaganism. I'm just talking about an economy that allows you, you know, that allows entrepreneurship and invention and ingenuity. Our, our economy, for better or worse does reduce the cost of luxury items over time. Yes, flat screen TVs, phones generally are cheaper than they was originally. I mean, I bought a couple of really nice TVs in the last couple of years for all of them were less than $500. But the goods that you're talking about going up are goods that are needed for survival, exactly. food, housing, health care, stuff like that, stuff that there is no incentive in the capitalist innovation moniker to reduce the cost of because that system of free market entrepreneurship only works if the person buying what you're selling can say no if you can't i can't say no to a heart surgery i need i cannot say no to um child care or housing and yes people will say that you could just move somewhere else but the problem with that is is that you know, this is one of the things. This was the thing that made me quit watching Ben Shapiro because I used to be a huge fan of his. Was when he was talking about how people from the urban, the rural South and the poor parts of the country should pack up and move and go find better jobs. And I thought, yes. has there ever been a more tone deaf statement in the history of politics? And I'd be hard pressed to believe there is. Here is what he's saying. I want to tell the audience this. He is saying some of the poorest least educated, least connected people in the entire country that don't have enough money to hardly pay their bills as they are, are supposed to somehow pack up, buy a home in some of the most expensive and competitive job markets in the United States and somehow find work in there against people that were 
already there, probably better educated as far as set post-secondary education is concerned, and generally younger, will work for less. What I'm saying is, is that Ben Shapiro's idea that people should just pack up and move like the days of the freaking wagon trains just isn't an, a realistic situation. People, it's poor people of all colors. I'm sorry. Yeah. These people are a lot of modern conservatism. Reaganism is rooted in this sort of Ayn Rand, Lord of the Flies book by William Golding type of view where they uphold social Darwinism based on accumulated wealth. And unfortunately, this side of this sort of pseudo market liberalism has always had a very dystopian uh, element to it in American history. When you look at William Lloyd Harrison, you look at Reverend Conwell uh, and others, that is what modern American conservatism, not talking about the views of people like a Russell Kirk or old Whig and Republican Party, people like Abraham Lincoln, who was very pro-labor, and Teddy Roosevelt, and even some of the more pro-business but protectionist conservatives. Now, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about these people that would be considered in Europe as radical, laissez-faire liberals. These are people that generally don't believe in society. They believe that if it feels good, just do it in the economic sphere. And unfortunately, what has happened, starting under Reagan, you know, Tea Party had had a state, uh, basically not even American president. He's just the Tea Party president. Um, essentially, they they put this awful, intellectually inconsistent, contradictory brew ideological witches brew together that Ben Shapiro and Charlie, well, Ben Shapiro uh, represents and his likes, Mark Levin and others. They, for, they forge this view that we hate abortion, we love the nuclear family, we're all for family values, but we put, we tie it in with an economic system that totally lacks patriotism and sentiments. It treats everything as a materialistic transaction. When you look at classical liberal theory, it's all materialistic. Ludwig von Mises, total materialism, total mechanical view of society, not an organic view of society, my opinion. Um, when you take a look at their views on national security, okay, we got to invade Iraq because they're a regional threat, weapons of mass destruction. My point of view, of course, is that they had a weapons of mass destruction, but that's a different topic for a different show. But yet at the same token, we're for, you know, spreading freedom and so-called free democracy and whatever abroad. But at the same time, we're for trade, open trade with a more open trade uh, with Russia and China. And unfortunately with Reagan, it was the birth of this so-called neoconservative ideology. And it's this fusionism of just totally contradictory stances. Um, and, you know, this is what happens when people listen to Ben Shapiro and you get people like Congressman Dan Crenshaw. I mean, God bless his service to the country through the military as a Navy SEAL, but I'm sorry, he's a horrible congressman with horrible ideas. Um, you know, so the bottom line is, is that getting back into uh, our original topic here, you know, every, the cost of living has gone up and you're right. I mean, it, you have to pay moving costs and that can t some hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to move from point A to point B, depending on the distance and how much stuff you have and the labor hours required to load the truck. That's how moving costs are calculated. And then on top of that, you know, where are you going to get a job? Now, a lot of jobs are in the cities, and those are highly competitive, too. And the major cities, I'm sorry, it is not cheap. And, you know, we allow people from other countries. God bless them. I have nothing against people from foreign countries. I am dating somebody original who is originally from Cuba. So believe me, you know, I'm not xenophobic. But we have wealthy foreigners who and foreign investors who come in and domestic investors, too, who snap up all these empty houses. And, you know, that uh, 
negatively affects the housing market uh, because these houses will lie empty at times. And, you know, that's a problem uh, because now home ownership has been much more monopolized when it comes to who the landlords are. The mom and pop landowner landlords are slowly dissipating. And on top of that, you have also, again, wealthy foreigners coming in and snapping up all these empty apartments and empty condos and empty homes. It's a big problem in California. It's a big problem in Florida. And, you know, this is a result, again, of free trade, of deregulation. Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, gutted a lot of the housing programs. And Ronald Reagan also really uh, was the one responsible for getting rid of the subsidized colleges. I mean, this is why people owe tons of money with college, because federal funding has been cut. Even in the state of Florida, our Florida Republican-dominated legislature is one of the few things I don't like about this state. They recently put massive cuts in the uh, the uh, state-owned, uh, the state-operated university system, which means more costs are passed to the students and their parents. I mean, and this is why I can't stand the Republicans, because what they refuse to understand, because it violates their ideology, in reality, the Republicans, all they want to conserve is the power and the accumulated wealth of private sector oligarchs. They, what they, they don't want to understand is people like us. We need resources to get ahead. If you can't afford the bootstraps, how are you supposed to pull yourselves up the boot? I mean, come on now. I mean, this is common sense. And this is why I have abandoned conservatism. I will, And I will beat this horse to death as long as I have this, you and I have this microphone. I'm going to beat this horse to death until the day I croak and die. Because I feel so passionate about it. Why? Because it gets me angry. It gets me angry at how <clears throat> people like Ben Sapiro and Grover Norquist and Steve Forbes, as you're bringing up, Steve Forbes, I can't impersonate him. He's a schmuck anyways. Um, how, you know, these people, they just have no empathy for individuals. They just, Lord of the Flies, you know, survival of the fittest. If you die, you fall down. Well, fuck you too. Well, you know what? Uh, you know, these people are beneath contempt. They really are. And I'm sorry for this rant because this this is one of the few things that genuinely gets me angry. So what say you, Herschel? Well, you know, and I've been listening to this, and I would like to say this to any conservative or libertarian in the audience. Now, me and you have done a couple of shows, kind of, sh and we kind of talk about it every show, talking about where we're different from the Republican Party. And I'd like to summarize it like this. The Republican Party, at least in so far as what is established as the Republican Party and its apparatus, people like Ben Shapiro, Mike, or Mitch McConnell, Ron Johnson, the traditional conservatives, as you would understand them, their entire goal is not to support the country. It's not for what's best for the country. It's for what's best for the market. We care. So they, they will sacrifice American sovereignty, American prosperity, uh, all of these things that our country needs to survive in order to satiate the market itself. Our goal is to strengthen the country. And we have a, you know, and, and, I, and I say this, I am not against business. And I will say this every time because every time somebody will mention it or act like I'm something I'm not. I absolutely be believe in entrepreneurship. I absolutely believe in non-government control of major industries as far, insofar as I do not want a government agency deciding what Ford Motor Company is producing. But what I will say is this. In our country, we have many things that we have to do that are not profitable, that don't make sense to market forces. What I mean by that is this, is that if we don't fix the housing situation in this country, then we are going to see revolutions in our street. Now, people would say, well, you know, people have always had housing shortages. But yeah, but 
when you have times of great insecurity like we're living in right now, a housing shortage is not one of the things that you want to have, or at least housing quality of housing shortage. It's not marketable. That's not something that the market's going to take care of because there's no real incentive there for them to fix that situation. And on the same token as that, the the stuff like the prison system, that's always a good one I like to go to. There's not really a market force to drive the prison system in this country. In fact, the only market force there is is for the privatization of prisons that end up tend, you know, tend to screw everything up worse. But the point I'm getting to is this. <clears throat> These things that we have to fix, trade with China, that is completely against the market. People like Ben Shapiro, and you can quote me on this as many times as you want, have advocated for trade with China over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, talking, yeah. uh, and I, I can recall this from several episodes that I listened to of Ben Shapiro's when he would say when Trump would be talking about uh, trade deficits with China, he would go into this long-winded explanation saying how you have a trade deficit with your shopping mall, you have a trade deficit with your grocery store. But I think the point that he was missing there is the fact that China is an absolute enemy of the United States that seeks to destroy us or at least remove us from the world stage so they can take our spot, if nothing else. You can't trade with somebody like that. I don't care how profitable it is. But when the Republican Party is infested with people like Ron Johnson and Mitch McConnell that have deep ties to trade with China, how can you expect them to ever advocate for policies that are going to help people like us? And now, I will say this. In defense of what has become effectively the Trump party, a large swath of ardent Trump supporters and Trump affiliates in Congress and otherwise are generally against trade with China. So I will give them a passing grade there. It's just the devil's in the details. Right. You know, well, I think I think, you know, and I think this is what makes us an independent station compared to like that one that I posted on my Facebook, like Joyce Kaufman, who claims she's uh, independent. She's a local radio host down here in Florida, longtime political fixture, and she's anything but an independent. She's just Tea Party corporate sycophant, really and truly. Um, well, what makes us independent is we will give Trump credit um, for a lot of the positive things that he's done. I mean, one of the things that Trump has done that has been really earth-shaking in a positive way, he has moved Republican Party popular opinion uh, against trade with Red China. He has really brought trade into the general discussion so much that I just got a recent report in the mail from the Coalition for a Prosperous America, which is a an anti-free trade organization, businesses, laborers, activists, that's for more balanced trade. And they said that Joe Biden's actually, his trade policy is so far shaping up somewhat like Trump's. I have my criticisms of Joe Biden. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, some bad things in the news with his administration. But you know, I think Trump really did a great service, whatever his motivations were, in bringing the threat of China as well as the massive trade deficits and deindustrialization of the United States. He brought that into the popular conversation, whereas that was something I know from personal experience in my brief involvement in local Republican politics. That's something the Republican Party did, generally did not want to touch because Milton Friedman style economics was really... It was very hardcore, and it became even more hardcore during the Tea Party interlude between 2010 and like the end of the Obama administration, if you will, and the rise of the Trump, uh, the uh, Trumpism within the Republican Party. So, um, you know, you take a look at that, you know, and there are a lot of other good things that Trump did that you and I would agree with. I mean, he withdrew from the Iran deal. He cut off aid to the Palestine Authority. I mean, these are governments that we have no business uh, entering into any kinds of deals with. He put new uh, sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba. He withdrew from the INF Treaty. I mean, he's done a lot of good things, but he's also done a lot of damage to the country, too. But a lot of this was old wine and new bottles because, unfortunately, again, Trump was surrounded by genuinely bad bad faith actors, in my opinion, the Larry Kudlow's and the Paul Ryan's and the Mitch McConnell's. And he was outflanked by a lot of these people. If and I then, for a second, I would say that that has to be Trump's biggest failure. Yeah. Exactly. I've thought about that for a long time, like what went wrong in the Trump presidency. And to me, 
surrounding himself with people like Larry Kudlow and Steve Mnuchin done more damage to him, mm -hmm. politically speaking, yeah, than yeah. any other individual act he done. Because it, in a certain way, uh, you know, Larry Kudlow, Steve Mnuchin, and uh, Kushner mm -hmm. are Reaganites to the core, or at least corporate Democrats. I mean, yeah. Kushner was a corporate Democrat and very corrupt, too. Yeah, well, I could say that you could still be a Democrat in a Reagan, I'd if Bill Clinton is anything to go for it. Oh, for absolutely. Sure. Mm -hmm. What I would say though is, is that th them people that molded Trump's day to day policies, because this is what people have to understand about the presidencies. Presidents, generally speaking, do not take an active hand in the coming, you know, the daily goings of the U.S. federal government. You know, mm -hmm. policies. Yeah, they'll get the hot button, the big overall picture. You know, Trump's trade deal was. I genuinely believe engineered mostly by Trump. I don't think that he had outside actors forcing him into that. But, you know, like when um, uh, related to farmers, when um, Sonny Perdue raised the amount of beer, meat imported into the United States, that was probably not directed by Trump. That was just he put this dude in charge that had a vested interest in the international meat trade. And then the guy turned around and screwed over the farmers. That's right. Steve you look at also Elaine Chao uh, when she was Secretary of Transportation. I mean, she fought off efforts. I talk about it in volume two of my book on the Trump Revolution Betrayed. That's the name of the chapter. And I talk about how she uh, she uh, basically totally went against any notions of the Buy American in the ship industry, in the shipbuilding industry, that she really put the kibosh in really Americanizing uh, our production of uh, ships. So, yeah, that's the problem. And this is why ultimately I know it might be considered a pipe dream, but there really needs to be a new mass movement uh, that's independent of both the Republican and Democratic parties. And that's something that probably is maybe decades, if not generations down the line. But one of the two topics I wanted to also address was this so-called labor shortage, which really and truly is a I termed it on a recent Facebook post on my political Facebook page called NATPOP, N-A-T-P-O-P, if those of you want to follow it. Uh, and it's also, I called it a soft general strike. I know you talked about it in your last episode of the Herschel Miller Show, but in case those uh, the patriotic populist viewers haven't listened to your last episode of the Herschel Miller Show, I wanted you to kind of recap um, your views on the labor shortage, please. Okay, so to start with, we talked about it a little bit earlier, so general understanding of it to get started. The United States, at least notionally, is experiencing what it's called terming a labor shortage in the country, where you got these businesses that are claiming that there's nobody to work, so they can't open their business, which... I mean, I'd like to see the actual down-home statistics on how much of actual labor shortage there is in this country because I haven't seen any businesses locally that haven't been able to open because of that. But, you know, national economics or macroeconomics, a little different situation. But my argument is this. There is no such thing as a labor shortage. There is only a pay shortage. You have to convince people that what you're paying them is worth them spending hours out of their life to go do. Because that's what that's what labor is. If you want to get down to the brass tacks and the bullets of the, the dynamic of labor and capital, when you pay somebody an hourly wage, you are paying them for a piece of their life. You know, and you know, and, and you're setting how much of that time in their life is worth. So if you ask me like this, and this is kind of a rudimentary way of asking this question, but I think it gets to the point pretty solid. Is nine dollars worth an hour of your life that you will never get back? Mm -hmm. or $10 or 12 What is your price? Now, obviously, everybody would name their own prices higher than it would be paid, but let's, just for point of conversation, people have decided that being on unemployment for $300 and getting to enjoy their life is better than being paid $300 for a 40-hour work week. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I've said this before. I am not for lazy people. One of the biggest things that bothers me in life is people that are able and unwilling to work. Mm -hmm. Me too. By the way. I'm not going to sit here and, and simp for a bunch of companies that have the ability but no urge to pay. 
look, people have said this stupid argument before. Let me show you how this argument is done. They'll say, well, if you raised wages to $15 an hour, then they would raise uh, hamburger prices by $7 to match it. Well, that's not how business works. You're not 100% of your running cost is not labor. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would have to be an absolute idiot of a businessman to pay 100% of your income. That's just stupid. No, labor accounts for, what is it, probably 15, 20% of overall operating cost at the end of the day. I, I wouldn't imagine it'd be much higher than that. I mean, I'd have to get back into it, but I think it's like 15 or 20% of your operating cost is labor on it. Mm. And that might just be for heavy, like industries that skilled industry. That's probably not even for your McDonald's or other fast food restaurants. What I'm getting to, these companies have the ability to pay. So what we have going on right now in this country is a staring match between people that are not going to work for nothing and businesses that aren't going to pay for anything. Now, who wins that fight? That'll be for the historians to decide years from now. But for right now, the labor has the momentum because now that people have got an understanding of the, just how necessary the smallest job in this country is for the overall economy, that's given people an idea that, hey, if we hold out, we can force these companies to pay us a decent wage. Maybe it works, maybe it don't, but I have hope it does. Mm. No, I think that's very well said. We have, I think, a couple of minutes left in the show, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but I couldn't agree with you more. And again, uh, as we were talking offline, I mean, one ice cream parlor, uh, I forget the name of it, uh, raised their wages um, to $15 an hour as a starting wage. And they had over a thousand people apply for them. If people are treated well, and there are many businesses that are starting to do this, even McDonald's and uh, some of the other chains are starting to do this. If you pay your people well, you're going to get loyalty. You're going to have a greater chance of having uh, loyal employees. They're going to be able to afford goods and services. That puts money in back into the economy, which ultimately the rich will become richer, which you and I have no fundamental problem with, as long as the working class people and middle class people are well compensated and can enjoy the basics of life without going into debt or being homeless. Um, you know, again, this goes back to how the concept of a bottom-up capitalist economy works, not this top-down supply-side system where if you give all the benefits to the 1%, then somehow it trickles down, which is really just a fraud. Um, so, you know, this just proves the, uh, the correctness of, you know, you know, more unionization, higher wages, and better working conditions for people. Uh, that's what happens because what's going on with this later labor shortage is just, it's a quiet general strike. That's essentially what it is because people would rather, sadly, and I'm not for this, sadly would collect unemployment and have a better standard of living than going to work for 40 hours a week and getting underpaid, essentially, where they can't even afford the basic goods and services necessarily, or if they have to choose between, you know, cutting their pills in half or paying for, you know, groceries versus rent and everything else. I mean, it doesn't make sense. And that causes alienation of people, which means they become, you know, more uh, inclined to be socialists or communists. So there's a national security element. Now, there's one other thing I wanted to briefly mention because we're running out of time and then I'll have you will close up, Herschel. Um, Joe Biden, you know, Joe Biden, there are some things he's doing, as we talked about in the show, in the right direction. He had a horrible voting record. I mean, and horrible records on national security and everything else. You know, and he's making some strong noises on Russia and China, him and, you know, Tony Blinken and other members of the Biden administration. But here lies the devil is in the details, literally. Joe Biden has waived sanctions uh, on uh, companies, uh, you know, dealing and constructing the Nord Stream pipeline, which will make Russia, uh, well, it will make Germany and Europe more dependent on Russian natural gas. And Russia is a major threat uh, to the United States and certainly a threat to Europe. 
their funding a variety of anti-NATO leftists as well as right populist groups trying to cause dissension within the NATO camp, which is ultimately not a good thing for American security. And um, on top of that, Joe Biden's uh, Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is making contradictory noises about China, you know, saying that we're not going to contain China uh, in the Pacific region. And I'm not saying we should go to war with China, but we should support allies like Australia. In one breath and one side of his forked tongue, the Biden administration is saying we'll back our allies in Australia. And then other times they're saying, well, we're not going to contain China and we don't want to antagonize them and everything else. So this is a long-running American foreign policy under many presidents that, you know, we talk out of both sides of our mouth. Why? Well, part of it is because I think we know that China, combined with Russia especially, is extremely powerful compared to the United States. And two, our government is controlled by big capitalist oligarchs, and they want to maintain the gravy trade of trade and investment with communist China. Um, so I see those two as issues. Um, what are your thoughts about the Biden administration with Russia and China from what you know I've said and the what you followed? Well, it's, it's the same crap like you're saying is that Joe Biden is deciding that trading the United States out to a bunch of companies is worth the risk of an increased threat of China and Russia. And it's it's a fundamental question that everybody has to ask themselves at the end of the day is, is that are we willing to satiate big businesses ventures at the cost of everything else? <laughs> now, I, I think you'd have to be an absolute psychopath to think that, but there are people that believe that the risk associated with trade with these countries like Russia and China are worth the economic benefits to the top 1%. And if there's anything that Trump got right, it was China and Russia. Now he had conflicting views at times on China and Russia and, you know, somewhat eclectic policies concerning them. But mm -hmm. as far as the overall picture, Trump was in the right direction. And I will say mm -hmm. that if there's anything that comes out of this presidency, that it will be a big down step from Trump. It'll be the U.S., Soviet, U.S., Russian, and China's relationship. Sure. And it is one of the things that worries me deeply about the Biden administration. Now, people like to claim that Trump was some Russian asset. I mean. That's bullshit. Look, yeah. at the end of the day, Trump was Trump's asset. I mean, yeah. the man was just about as much of a loose cannon as you could imagine. But that's the thing about him. Trump, I don't believe there was ever a point that Trump was either elected by or heavily influenced by the Russians. I think that Trump was just out for himself at times. Well, Trump did a lot of, like what many multinational corporate executives did. He traded with Russia. He traded with China. He traded with many other countries. And I'm not trying to excuse Trump. I don't think we should be trading with Russia and China and other anti-American and or communist or Islamic dictatorships. I don't think we should do that as a matter of principle. However, you know, to say that Trump was just this Russian asset, I think that really is not intellectually honest. I mean, Trump had very conflicting views on Russia and China. I mean, and, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is he within, with all the constraints imposed by the Republican Party and the capitalist corporations, uh, I mean, really, Trump has probably been the hardest core on China and Russia, certainly verbally. Uh, ever since, um, gosh, Ronald Reagan and Ronald Reagan himself was very contradictory on issues of uh, dealing with communist countries, just like Trump was. But I'll tell you, Trump was in a vast improvement over Obama and Obama certainly uh, count out to the Russians and the Chinese in many, many ways. Um, you know, and for example, uh, you know, with the New START Treaty, which the Russians didn't pay attention to, they kept on building their fleets of cruise missiles, ICBMs and SLBMs. I mean, Obama gave, uh, you know, joined at the hip by the Republicans and the Tea Partiers and most of the Democrats gave Putin's Russia permanent normal trade relations. I mean, you know, but... Outside of hardcore Republicans and conservatives, I mean, the, the Democrats were the most hardcore, 
uh, Obama an agent of Russia? And he did, did far more for Putin than Trump even did. And I'm not saying Trump was cons consistently right on Putin. I mean, Trump was all over the place. But, you know, Trump quanti qualitatively and quantitatively did more engage in more policy actions which tried to somewhat reduce the threat of Russia and China than Obama did. And Trump, believe me, had his contradictions. And that went back to the fact that Trump is Trump and he's a loose cannon, as you put it, and he's in it for himself to some degree. And then the other thing is he staffed his administration with people that profited with Russia and China, that favored engagement with Russia and China. So, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think that covers that point. Did you have any uh, closing remarks before we go, Herschel? No, I think we could do a quick channel admin real quick, though, which is just us talking about what's going on in the channel and, you know, the, the organization. So oh, yeah. On my side of it, obviously, I'm going to be doing another episode Thursday. I think I'm going to be going over. It's going to be I'm going to call it the Faustian bargain. Basically, it's, it's talking about how companies sold us out in order to maintain profits and maintain market control. And that's going to be most of the that. Um, we're looking at more cooperations with other organizations. Um, obviously, if you're another person watching this video and you want to be part of the, the coalition to help fight for an American, a prosperous America, then reach out to me, Nevin, message the show directly. However, you have to get a hold of us. We're always willing to take more people as long as you're in our, you know, if you're about where we are, then you can be a part of this. Um, other than that, Nevin, it was, it's been a real pleasure on my end to do this. And I think things are looking up for us. What do you got for on your yeah, end? No, I, I have some good things. Uh, my uh, personal political page, Nat Pop, short for National Populist. We have at least 45 people liking it. It's a relatively young Facebook page. I also noticed that the patriotic populist, I mean, despite uh, the antics of Facebook, is still getting, you know, uh, likes and new members. So that's good news. And also the uh, our YouTube channel for this program, we broke 20 people or about 22 people. And I think we got some new members because of the various guests that we have, including J.R. Nyquist, including uh, Brian Carroll, the American uh, Solidarity Party, and other guests that we've had to as well, uh, promoting the channel. So we're up to 22 uh, regular subscribers, which is a step in the right direction. And uh, I have part two of my interview series tonight, uh, nine o'clock Eastern Standard Time uh, with uh, J.R. Nyquist. And we're going to be talking more about geopolitics. Well, Nevin, it's been a pleasure. And I look forward to the next time we can do this. Sounds great. Have a great week, Herschel. Have a great week, everybody. And we look forward to seeing you all, hopefully, uh, Memorial Day weekend. Take care and God bless. <laughs>